This episode is sponsored by SH Building Group. The experienced team of professionals at SH Built consists of client, site, accounting, subcontractor, design, and craft building specialists. They integrate the latest construction management technology and offer home guardianship services and advanced inspections. Tom Sherlock and his team helped remodel my home, and their attention to detail was unsurpassed. Start planning a project today. Visit shbuilt.com or call 970-923-1122 and tell them you heard about them on Selling the Mountains. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Christian Knapp. This is Selling the Mountains, a show about the booming mountain town real estate economy and unique personalities fueling it. Each episode is an insider's perspective on market trends, lifestyle, success stories, and the ups and downs of home ownership in the mountains. Christian Knapp is the former chief marketing officer of Aspen Skiing Company and a lifelong mountain town enthusiast. He is an accomplished marketing and sales leader who has worked for the top resorts in North America including Aspen, Vale, Breckenridge, and Keystone. Currently, Christian is an independent consultant and principal at Moment of Truth, a boutique marketing firm specializing in brand development, strategic planning, and digital execution. All opinions expressed by Christian and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the companies or clients they represent. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for real estate investment decisions. My guest today is Craig Morris. Craig is a co-owner of Aspen Snowmass Sotheby's International Realty and has sold over 2.8 billion worth of property in his 24 year real estate career. In 2020, he had his biggest year ever, almost by double, and personally sold 492 million with as many as 28 properties under contract at one time. Craig's success comes from his honest approach, integrity, and professionalism with creative and innovative ideas, tirelessly doing whatever it takes to service his clients and customers. He is highly respected in the real estate community on both a professional and personal level. In our conversation, we discuss the power of work ethic and the opportunities that come when you're available 16 to 17 hours per day, seven days a week. The monumental power of having a strong team behind you to manage the business and provide balance. Lastly, we touched on the tried and true power of networking as the ultimate marketing tool. I hope you enjoyed this great conversation with Craig. This episode is brought to you by Obermeyer Wood Investment Council, an independent investment advisory and financial planning firm based in Aspen and Denver with roots dating back to 1982. Their team of experienced investors, thoughtful financial advisors, and focused problem solvers have helped hundreds of individuals, families, and nonprofits identify and achieve goals using sound advice, careful planning, and clear communication. They are locally based experts, dedicated community members, and proud sponsors of Selling the Mountains. Obermeyer Wood would like to offer all listeners a complimentary, no pressure investment portfolio review with one of their experienced team members. To schedule a review or to learn more about their services, visit obermeyerwood.com. Back in 2001, Ernie had introduced me to uh, a seller, and this seller uh, had a, about a $5 million townhome in downtown Aspen. And I was very fortunate to get this listing. And when I told you that Ernie and his family had moved to Spain, when Ernie moved to Spain back in the late 90s, 
he rented his house to a guy from Texas. And Ernie sent me a note and said, go over to my house tomorrow and introduce yourself to this guy from Texas. His name is Robert. He likes to play golf and he flies his own plane. You need to know him. And I'm thinking he likes to play golf and he has a, I'm thinking he has a jet. Of course I got to go meet this guy. So I go meet this guy and we have a, a, a nice relationship and we're, we're still very, very good friends. My kids went to SMU in Dallas in large part because of my relationship with Robert. Anyway, Robert refers a guy to me and the, the guy, his name is, well, he, he refers this guy to me and he, the guy calls me up and says, I, I don't want to spend all day looking at property. Just, I want a really good townhome right downtown in Aspen. So long story short, I've got this new listing for $4.8 million and I get this referral, this buyer that comes to town and I show him this listing and he says, I want it. Tell the seller I'll give him $800,000 in cash and a million shares of stock in my company. And my company is publicly traded and it's trading for $4 a share. So that's $4 million in stock and $800,000 in cash. That's full price effectively for the townhouse. We do all this due diligence. My seller is actually intrigued by this. He starts to look into the company and he says, I like this company. I think, I'll, I, think I might do this. But what the, the, the one catch was my seller, if he took the stock, he couldn't sell the stock for a year. He was handcuffed on this stock for a year. So the buyer says to him, I'll guarantee the $4 a share. In one year, I'll give you a 30-day window. If you sell the stock in one year for 30 days, if it's less than $4 a share, I'll write you a check for the difference. You got me, Christian? You with me? I am. All right. So a year later, so we do the deal. And my seller says, oh, by the way, Morris, you got to take your commission in stock. So I take the commission in stock, <laughs> which was a healthy commission. It was about $250,000. And so a year later, the stock is trading at $3.50. But we liked the company. So we, we keep the stock. And about nine months later, the stock is trading at $9. And my seller has a million shares of stock at four bucks. So of course, I'm the smartest guy in the room. So at $9, I sell all the stock and, and double my money. And I'm thinking I'm, I'm brilliant. The stock today, now it's 20 years later, the stock today is trading at $450 a share. My seller still owns more than half of that stock. In fact, he owns about 70%. 700,000 shares at $450 a share. I'll let you do the math, but it's not even believable. Okay, you got to tell me, what's the company? Yeah, I, 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 I probably shouldn't because it would expose names. So, so I, you're going to have to let me, uh, let me take the fifth on that. But it's a 100% true story. And both of those guys, the guy that traded the stock, he, uh, he still owns that townhouse, and he calls me salt-of-the-earth guy. He calls me every time he comes to town, which is not very often. He says, Craig, Craig, I think you owe me a cup of coffee, Craig. Let's meet. I'm coming to town. You owe me a cup of coffee. So every time he comes to town, I owe him a cup of coffee, which is, of course, my pleasure, and he's just a super great guy. And by the way, my seller has become a close personal friend, as you might imagine, 
and we play golf together and travel and just a, just a super guy. So I, I think that's a pretty incredible story. That, that is an incredible story. I mean, how, how often do you come across an unconventional transaction like that? I mean, I've heard of people buying properties with Bitcoin or crypto or whatever. Do you have other stories like, or have you had other experiences like that? I have some some X-rated stories that I obviously can't <laughs> share, but um, no, I haven't. Bitcoin and the crypto, not yet, not in my world, not yet. I've had a few emails from strangers asking if I have a seller that will accept, uh, you know, eight million dollars in Bitcoin, and so it's starting. That that's coming around, but nothing yet. Well, it's it's not dissimilar to your story, right? If somebody had accepted. Bitcoin back when Bitcoin was valued at ten, fifteen thousand dollars, you know, and now it's approaching fifty thousand or over, um, depending on the day. Yeah, um, that would have been a very good investment. Very for sure, good. for sure. The the other yeah. one is uh, I'll make it a bit quicker. Um, I had a uh, another five million dollar listing in the West End, and my seller, who's since passed, awesome guy. Um, I had a buyer, my buyer also, that came in and said. Tell him I'll give him full price. I'll give him two and a half million in cash, but I need him to to carry the other two and a half million for a year. So it'll take me a year to pay him the other two and a half million, but I'm giving him two and a half million up front. So if I don't pay him off, I'm not going to walk away from two and a half million dollars. And I said, yeah, I get it. I get it. So I called the seller who was not the most sophisticated guy. Uh, he was actually a, a farmer and um, did very well with his farming business. And I called him and said, got, got a full price offer for you, two and a half million cash, and you have to carry the other two and a half million. You'll be in a first position. And he said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not a bank. I'm not doing that. Tell the guy, go get a loan. And I said, well, he can't get a loan, and he's ready to close in two weeks. And the seller just basically brushed me off and said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Quit bugging me. And I was at home that night explaining it to my wife. And my wife said, you should go, you should go fly. He lived in Florida. She said, you should fly to Florida. You need to explain this to him. He doesn't really understand what's happening. And I said, you know, you're right. So the next morning I got on a plane. I flew to Palm Beach, Florida. I went and knocked on his door. I got to Palm Beach, Florida. It was late at night. I had to spend the night. And so the next morning I knocked on his door at about 830 in the morning. He opens the door stark naked, six foot four, 230 pound man, 65 years old. He is buck naked, brushing his teeth. And he opens the door and he says, <laughs> Morris, what the F are you doing here? And I said, uh, uh, I'm here to talk to you about the offer that I told you about because you have to take this deal. And he says, no, really, what the F are you doing here? And I said, Tom, could you go put on a bathrobe or something? And can I come in? I'll meet you in the kitchen. And he says, no, I really want to know what you're doing here. And I said, I'm telling you the truth. I am here with this contract to convince you that you have to do this deal. So he doesn't believe that I flew all the way there to convince him. I stay there for a couple of hours. He signs the contract and I've fly home. We wind up doing this transaction. And six months later, the buyer writes him another check for two and a half million dollars. And everything went as planned. And this guy was a golf member at the Maroon Creek Club. And he walked around every day, anytime I would see him, he would just grab somebody and say, hey, you know, this guy, Craig Morris, let me tell you what he did. 
And he became my biggest fan and my biggest cheerleader. And it was just, just a super fun transaction. And obviously it's a good story and it, and it had a happy ending as well. That's, that's a good one, man. I love it. You, know, you got to go the extra mile and you never know what you're going to find at the other side, right? Yeah. And so, so much thanks to my wife saying, he just doesn't understand. You need to go there. And she was right. And what a big step, you know? I mean, I think I spent a thousand bucks and round trip and doing all that. And at the end of the day, it was obviously well worth it. This episode is brought to you by Aspen Snowmass Sotheby's International Realty, the premier brokerage in Aspen and the Roaring Fork Valley. As the largest local real estate brokerage, we are a powerhouse firm with international reach and over 180 hand-picked brokers who are local experts, deeply vested in our community and our clients. We continue to set the bar in market knowledge, sales volume, and satisfied clients, and have helped our clients buy and sell more homes than any other real estate company in Aspen and the Roaring Fork Valley for more than 20 years. Our year-to-date sales are greater than the next four companies combined. For us, it's not just business, it's personal, because we're convinced there's no better place to live than right here, right now. Learn more by visiting us at www.aspensnowmasssir.com. You know, it's now 2021. We're hopefully at the tail end of the pandemic. And uh, we're coming off of a crazy year in the mountains and real estate and, and everything else. How would you define your niche in this market? I think when I first started in the business, there were just a few brokers that were really, really going after it. And I read a quote once from Elizabeth Pepke in the newspaper that said she was saddened to learn that people are moving to Aspen to make money. And that that hit me a little bit uh, because... I decided to stay in Aspen because I got into the real estate business and I realized there was great opportunity here. So I think to answer your question, my first niche was I seemed to be outworking just about everybody. A lot of brokers were ski instructors or bartenders or doing other things. And oh, by the way, they're doing real estate. I got into the real estate business and I was doing real estate from six in the morning until 10 at night, seven days a week. So I, uh, like I said, I, I just appeared to be outworking just about everybody in the business. So eventually you started your own brokerage, Morris Fearwald. How did that come about? Yeah. So when I was in the alarm business from 1989 until 1997, I was chasing new construction and business owners and homeowners and trying to sell alarm systems. And somebody that I ran across was Ernie Fearwald, who had been living in Aspen for approximately 20 years already at that time. I met him in the early 90s, and he owned Aspen Sports. He had a slew of ski shops in Aspen, Snowmass, Breckenridge, Vail, Steamboat, And I updated his alarm systems. They were all old and antiquated. And he was also a golf professional. He ran the 
the city golf course. This was before the Maroon Creek Club was built. And he was a golf pro. So if you were Michael Eisner, the CEO of Disney, or washing dishes at the Cantina, which is now Michola, if you were going to take a golf lesson, you were going to see Ernie. So Ernie knew everybody in town. He knew everybody from, from his ski shops and from the golf the golf store and, and running the, the pro shop out at the city golf course. And we became friends, and I sold him numerous alarm systems in his stores. And then when I got out of the alarm business and, and got into real estate, he was a source of referrals for me. One of the very first sales I made was, was to Minton and D.D. Perdoe. They were managers of one of Ernie's stores. And then he referred somebody else to me, and I sold them a condo. And he said to me one day, you know, I know a lot of people in the real estate business, and I've sent three people your way, and you've sold them, you've sold all three of them properties. I don't know that I've ever sent people to anybody else and where they've ever made a sale, and you're three for three. And I said, well, keep it coming, and I'll keep doing it, and everybody will be happy. Well, Ernie wound up selling all of his ski shops to the Gart family, and that was 20, 25 years ago. He was about 40 years old at the time, sold all of the ski shops. He was married, had four young kids, and he decided they were going to move to Spain. They did. They moved to Spain for six months. And while he was gone, he was also trying to figure out what he was going to do. And I was, was in, the, in the business working at Coach Reed and Waldron at the time. And when Ernie came back from Spain, you know, it took a little, a little while, some things transpired, but I said, you know, we should start our own company. You don't have to do anything. I, I looked up to him. He's 10 years older than me. I looked up to him as, as a mentor in every way, as a, as a father, as a husband, as a businessman. And he's truly one of the, one of the finest people I've ever been around my whole life. We decided that we were going to start our own company. And I said, Ernie, all you have to do is bring the people in, give them to me. I'll do all the work. So we created our, our, our company with, with that in mind. And he did that. He'd bring people in. He's very charismatic, got a great personality. Everybody likes him. And he's not a, he was not a real estate guy. So he didn't have this reputation of being a real estate guy. He was just friendly and social. And as he would connect and communicate with people, playing golf and skiing and doing other things, if he figured out that they were interested in real estate or they had a property they wanted to sell, he would say, you should really talk to my partner. He's really good in the business. And then he would hand them over to me. And I was good at it. So as long as I didn't fumble, I had great leads coming in the door from Ernie. And they were coming in with, with a lot of credibility. He brought a lot of credibility to me. So he'd bring people in. I'd follow up with them. I was good at it. And it was a, just a perfect match. So you guys had a successful brokerage and eventually um, merged with Chafin Light Real Estate and created what is now Aspen Snowmass Sotheby's. How did that come to pass? Yeah, so Ernie and I started with our company in 2000, October of 2000. And then we got the Sotheby's franchise in 2009 as the world was changing in 2008, 2009 in the financial crisis. 
there was a Sotheby's here in Aspen that was going out of business. It was uh, mismanaged and poorly run. And we wound up absorbing many of their brokers and we got the franchise. I think we decided at the time that the world was changing and if we could affiliate ourselves with a large brand, we thought that would be powerful and beneficial. And it has been. Shortly thereafter, as we were growing and expanding, I mean, truly, it started with three of us and an administrative assistant. And as we grew, and now we've got 70 or 80 brokers and a couple of offices, of course, Snowmass was in our sights. We wanted to get an office in Snowmass. But there were three or four companies already in Snowmass and well-established, and they had all of the market share. So we could go get an office in Snowmass and start beating our heads against the ground and, and competing with four well-established companies. Or we had a conversation with Andrew Light and his father, Jim Light, and then Jim Chafin. We, we danced with them for about 16 months, talking about how we could merge, does it make sense? And as we talked about it, we started thinking about the economies of scale. They had an accounting department, so did we. Well, if we merged, we would only need one accounting department. Same with marketing, same with management, same with a managing broker, same with locations. By merging the two companies, there were some enormous cost savings from an operational standpoint. And we were, we were able to be more profitable with less overhead. And it just took analyzing the numbers and getting comfortable with each other and coming up with, now, now there's going to be four owners and we're all going to own less of a, of a bigger thing as opposed, as opposed to owning all of a smaller thing. So we were able to make those numbers work and uh, it's been a successful merger and partnership going on 10 years now. It's pretty interesting that the uh, merger and all this sort of happened during the last, you know, mega recession, uh, when the real estate market was arguably at its low point for the Valley. And then you saw kind of the rise starting around 2010 and just sort of that steady rise all the way through the most recent boom driven by the pandemic. You know, you've been here your whole life for the most part, uh, all, all full adult life. You know, how has the Valley changed and you know, how is this current real estate boom impacting the Valley? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a loaded question for me because the boom and the growth is all personally beneficial to me and my company and my family. And so, you know, do I miss boogies? I sure do. Do I miss the shaft and Jim Palazzi's gas station where Paradise used to be? Uh, I miss all those things, and, and the town certainly has changed. But I've benefited greatly, unbelievably, from all of this change. So I embrace it, and, and I like it. But I understand when I talk to other people who are frustrated that there's a 30-foot art museum downtown, which I happen to like. 
um, and and there's these new buildings and the whole kind of old school western feel of our town has has morphed into a little more showy and I don't know what the right word is, but it's just a a little more metropolitan, even though it's a small town. So I've, I've been a part of, and I've seen all of that change where we've kind of gone from this slower, sleepier, Western type Colorado town to something that's a little more chic and sexy and alive. And, and, you know, I like it, but I can certainly see where some of the old timers uh, and people that have lived here for a long time where they miss what it used to be. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think it did. You know, I'm not an old timer myself. I've been here about nine, 10 years. And, and even in my time, I've seen it change dramatically, right? Some of those, you know, those locally owned establishments, whether they're restaurants, bars, or shops have definitely been pushed out to some degree in the downtown. And you're seeing deeper pocketed brands, stores, boutiques, restaurants with, you know, coming from elsewhere, you know, taking over because they can afford the rents in these um, beautiful new remodels downtown and these new buildings. And I think that has changed the fabric of the, the downtown experience a bit. You know, Christian, when I moved here in 86, it was the opening of the Little Nell. You know, there used to be uh, more of a, a old style Western uh, Little Nell that was there and and it got torn down. And I remember the locals were in an uproar and they didn't want this big fancy hotel going in. And there was a lot of controversy about that. And now look at it. I think we all for the most part, I would guess the vast majority of us that live here, we look at the Little Nell and think it's a fabulous asset to this town. And the same with the gondola. But back then, people were going crazy and they didn't want the old one torn down and they didn't want this new one being built. Same thing. I referenced Boogies a few minutes ago, like that is some historic establishment in Aspen. I think it was built in the in the early 90s and people were, were in an uproar about that. And that turned out to be an awesome establishment in Aspen. I think it was it was one of the the anchors from a retail standpoint. Everybody knows Lenny Boogie Wineglass, and the the retail store was awesome. And uh, you still see people walking around with hats and shirts and Boogie's memorabilia. It was a great diner upstairs, and now that's gone. So you know, I I look at it like it's it's just natural. The evolution of of real estate and construction, modernization. So it all seems fairly natural to me. It's the same thing if you're in Los Angeles, you drive down Wilshire Boulevard or Ocean Avenue, or you're in Pacific Palisades on Sunset Boulevard. It's all changed quite dramatically over the last 20, 25 years, everywhere you look. You had an incredible, incredible 2020, 492 million in sales, which is astonishing. Tell me a little bit about how that unfolded, and was it your biggest year ever? It was my biggest year ever, almost by double. I've had several years of between 200 and 280 million in sales, which, you know, those are astonishing, unbelievable years. So to, to nearly reach 500 million, I couldn't have done it without the support of, of, my team, my, um, I don't operate as a team actually, but 
my team is my assistant, Sharon Mahoney. She was working till nine or 10 o'clock at night, literally six days a week. Just we had as many as 28 properties under contract at one time. And Sharon handles those files, ordering title commitments, coordinating with surveyors and inspections and dealing with me, calling her up saying, okay, we need to draft an inspection objection. There's 40 things wrong with the house that the buyer wants to object to. Or the flip side, we need to draft a resolution agreement and send it to the other broker because they objected to 40 things that are wrong with the house and the seller's not going to give him a penny and he's not going to fix anything. So the, the constant back and forth to have so many properties under contract and have to manage the process in each and every one of those and, and do it with skill and care. Um, she's amazing. And, and I have somebody else that works closely with me, Ben Roos. Uh, Ben's been with me 14 years and Sharon's been with me 18 years. It's really unbelievable that, that we've got that longevity and still going. And Ben helps me on the outside. He helps show property for me when I can't be in two places at once. He helps stage my listings and accompany showings on my listings. And he's fabulous. He's very approachable. He's a complete pro, uh, well-dressed, well-educated, articulate. He, he makes it a, a point to become an expert on each and every one of my listings. So when he's there, somebody walks in the door, he tours around or, or gets a feel for how people want to see the house. Some people want to be left alone and just walk around and other people want you to hold them by the hand and walk them into each room and explain everything about each room. So he's, he's very good about that. And those two were monumental in, in my sales, sales figures for, for not only 2020, but for the last 14 and 18 years. That's amazing. I mean, that's definitely a theme I've heard with other brokers, definitely brokers doing, you know, big dollars north of 100 million for sure are employing, you know, full-time assistants or administrative assistants or staff to manage all these different facets. And uh, that's, that's an important aspect to managing your business, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the business can eat you up because the schedule is the schedule of the buyers and the sellers. And that means it's, you know, it generally starts as early as 6 a.m. And sometimes I get calls until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And Tuesday is no different than Saturday or Sunday. It's just a, it's just another day. And, and so it can be seven days a week, 16, 17, 18 hours a day when you're, when you're really cranking. So you also have to find a way to to compose yourself and and get some balance in your life and uh, and that's what ben and sharon uh, have brought to the table for me the ability for me to have some balance in my life and and put a bunch of work on their plates knowing that that they can handle it efficiently and so it's worked really well yeah i'm just trying to wrap my head around 28 properties under contract at one time that seems like a lot like a you know touch you know, three-dimensional Tetris, yeah. <laughs> trying to manage all those buyers and sellers on each side. We, of that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we noticed that we had nine properties under contract and it was so busy. This is literally uh, mid-February. We were so busy. And I said to Sharon, how in the world did we have double and triple this last year during during the summer last year? 
And she looked at me and she said, I, I don't know. Is, is it ever going to stop? Is this ever going to slow down? And it used to be that Sharon could take a week off and Ben and I could just handle the load and, and fill in. But now I've got two people out there that we've kind of trained as temps that I bring in. And I couldn't survive if I didn't have quality quality support. So anyway, yeah, 28 was just, uh, it was it was amazing. And it stayed there. You know, we, we had 28 under contract and we'd have three or four closings. And then we put one or two more things under contract. So we had 25 or 26 under contract. And, and then we had the trickle effect where it went from 25 to 22 and then back up to 24 and then down to 20 and then up to 22 and down to 16. And so it was an amazing ride for sure. So based on these numbers, and if you had eight under contract at once in February, your Q1 has gone quite well. Yeah, Q1 is, is amazing, but I can see Q2 and Q3 it's going to be good, but it won't be amazing. I mean, we're, we're way down on inventory. And now what's happening is sellers are saying, hmm, I paid seven. It got up to 10. And now there's this COVID craze. Maybe it's worth 15. And so there's a lot of sellers putting, they're driving the prices and they're putting properties on the market at numbers that are beyond unreasonable. You know, there's, there's, there's some, some science to this. We can come up with, look at comps and price per square foot and location and size and quality and views and all those things and determine a price. And it's, there's some science to it, but you can't say this is absolute. That property is worth $10 million because it might be worth 11 or 12 in this crazy market. But when somebody says, all right, it's, it's, it's worth 10, maybe even 11 or 12 is not out of the question, but let's go to 19. That's what's happening now. And so that will trigger a slowdown along with less inventory because these buyers aren't, they're not stupid. I mean, they're all very wealthy and they're leaders and, and directors and managers of industry and business. They're smart. And I find that the smarter they are and the more money they have, it doesn't take long for them to say, is this worth $19 million? And they're not going to be the sucker that overpays by 40%. In many cases, they're willing to pay a premium because they can afford it and because they want to live here. So they're, they're okay paying retail or paying a premium, but they're not okay paying retail plus 40%. It just, it's against their DNA and it's just not smart. So of course, every once in a while, there's a rarity and somebody pays something that's, that's ridiculous. But otherwise, they're starting to look at, at prices around here saying, no, this is crazy. It feels like a bubble. It feels like we're not only at the top, we're at the tippy top. And I don't want to be the guy that buys at the top. So we got a lot of people now starting to let's wait and see, and I can't blame them. And I've heard some stories uh, from some of my other conversations about, you know, properties that are priced correctly, they're gone in a flash, right? You have to be incredibly on it or they're pocket listings. They're never even hitting the MLS, you know, and those properties are selling or moving. Um, it's these ones that are 
as you said, ridiculously priced that are going to sit on the market and people aren't going to want to overpay for that stuff. Right. As a listing broker, I think it's my job to tell you, Christian, as a seller, here's what I think your property is worth and here's why. Let me justify it. Let's talk about other properties similar or comparable to yours. But the market is very healthy right now and there's limited inventory. So I think we can push beyond what the statistics might say your house is really worth. Can we push it 10% or 20%? Maybe. And I certainly don't want to leave any of your money, Mr. Seller, on the table. So I would recommend we go here, but no higher. I think that's my job. And then get the property out there, get the exposure, and see what happens. Do you work with specific developers and contractors and designers? How do, how do you work with them? You know, if you have a seller or buyer coming to you or buyer wants to remodel a home, do you refer them to developers? Do you work in partnership with a developer? Yeah, there's two, there's really two angles there. Developers are people like Richard Wax and Mark Friedland, two wildly successful developers in this market. And there are, there are many more, but those are two that I'm particularly close with, have done a lot of business with over the years. They find properties or brokers find properties and bring those properties to them. I'm one of those brokers that brings properties to them. And I know a little bit about the construction world, so I'm able to say, we can buy this property for $3 million. It's going to take $2 million to fix it up or rebuild or whatever, and it's going to be worth ten. And if you can put those numbers together and bring that to a developer and they buy those properties and, and do the development, then hopefully you've done a good enough job and they have trust and confidence in you where then you get the listing. So by finding something that's worth developing – you're, you're doing so many things to build your career. You're, you're establishing relationships with, with a developer that is, this is their, their area of expertise. They now find you to be intelligent and credible and you know what you're doing. And then you get the listing and you get to work with them again and hopefully sell that property for them. So there's a, there's a lot of relationship building and a lot of momentum that is, is gained and earned by doing that. So the answer to your question is, yes, I know all the developers in, in town and, and there's a lot of brokers here. So each developer has his own group of brokers or, or a broker that they're particularly close with. Um, it's very competitive in that regard. But if I have a buyer that buys, let's say, a, a townhouse downtown and they want to do a remodel, that's not necessarily a Mark Friedland or Richard Wax phone call. That's a phone call to a general contractor and a local architect because my buyer doesn't need a developer. It's not a spec project. My buyer needs somebody to do the work. So the developer is kind of the middleman and, and my buyer doesn't need that. You mentioned um, Tom Sherlock. I've referred Tom. Matter of fact, I've hired Tom. He did a remodel on our main office uh, on the Hyman Avenue Mall a couple of years ago and he did a great job. Well, he did a great job, and he, he, he did it for me. So I have a lot of confidence recommending Tom to a client of mine who's doing a remodel on a 3,000-square-foot townhome downtown. And that client, who's a friend of mine, called me and said, boy, I love working with Tom. 
He's doing a great job. He's very responsive. By the way, we go bike riding and skinning. He's he's fit. He's in shape. He's all about living in Aspen. He's he's hard worker. Thank you for the referral. So I spend quite a bit of time building relationships with contractors, architects, and designers because I know my clients are going to ask me for referrals, and I want to be able to refer the right people. I get the sense there's a lot of work, sort of work, being done uphilling. Do you, I, and I hear you, you uphill too. I, I, I know I was heading out one time with Tom and we bunt, we hung out with Ernie Fearwald on that uphill. And I've uphilled with uh, Andrew Erneman and Chris Klug this season as well. And it seems like that's definitely a trend and that's where people are connecting and a lot of business is being done actually. You know, it's, yes, you're right. But it's also, it's golf and it's being on the AVSC board and it's, getting in the gondola and it's it's charity events and it's school and it's everywhere as a as a as a realtor business is all around you and in many cases we're out spending thousands of dollars marketing and this whole shotgun approach to finding people and so often it's just it's just your niche it's just your your sphere of people and it's it's people in the various groups that you're affiliated with and making sure that they know that you're in the business and that you're in the business as a professional. You're not just chasing a commission. You're really an expert and you can guide them and educate them and show them that you're, you're concerned about their money and, and helping them. So yeah, it's everywhere. I, uh, Erneman and I have skinned together and, uh, we were, skinning and met this guy in the parking lot. We used to go at six o'clock in the morning. We met this guy in the parking lot several times and we're skinning up and it turns out that he's on the board of the boarding school that Andrew went to. I might botch this story a little bit, but it's effectively accurate. And they established a relationship. And the next thing you know, Andrew's over at the guy's house, giving him an opinion of value and taking him out to show him other properties and it's amazing where business comes from. And and I'm talking about a $7 million house and a $10 million house. So the money that can be made by doing by being that pro and establishing these relationships and doing it the right way is unbelievable. I mean that's $17 million worth of business. So it's it's amazing. So you mentioned, you know, the shotgun approach to marketing, thousands of dollars being spent, lots obviously lots of advertisements happening in the local magazines and newspaper and the airport and all the kind of traditional outlets, a lot of, you know, a lot of focus and emphasis on social media these days. What are you particularly fond of for your marketing? Networking. It's the number one word, in my opinion, for marketing. I'm not very social and I, I don't like having to do client dinners and the whole schmooze program. But I do play golf and I do exercise and I, I am visible and I'm part of various boards and charity groups. And, and I, I find that the majority of my business, the vast majority of my business, now that I've been doing it for 24 years, is 
satisfied friends and clients of mine that refer their friends to me. And so if somebody just calls or sends an email and says, oh, I saw an ad for this property, that's the time I bring one of my younger brokers or broker associates. I'll, I'll bring them in and say, hey, I've got this lead. I don't know this person, but we've connected and they're looking for a two-bedroom condo in downtown Aspen. Do you want to work on this with me? Because the business that I'm doing, the leads that I get from my network, from my referrals, those are very real. Those are real people that, that are ready to buy. When you get leads just coming in from the outside, from magazines or newspapers or somebody that calls on a sign, generally, those people need, they might not be real, number one, and and they need a lot of hand-holding and a lot of education, and there's no connection. There's nothing that makes them loyal to you as a broker. But when somebody that I've known for 10 years that has bought a home and I have a relationship with, when they refer their friends to me, there's an instant connection. There's an instant loyalty and an instant bond that we have. So they feel some sense of obligation to work with me. And when I can prove to them that I'm great at what I do, and I don't mean to sound arrogant about it, but I am really good at what I do, then those people look at me and say, wow, he's valuable. He's just not some realtor. This guy knows his stuff. He is valuable to me. And my friends told me to work with him. He's a good guy. I can trust him. That's, that's where you build that's where you build your business. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think in marketing in general, you know, word of mouth is always going to be your number one source of business, right? And, and referrals. Um, but there is, you know, there is another side of it where you have to kind of build the pipeline and present yourself for the next generation. And, and a lot of brokers that I've talked to and I see, you know, online are spending a lot of time and energy with their social media accounts, particularly on Instagram, dabbling in some of these new ones. Um, spending big bucks on video production, um, drone footage, all those different things to present properties online in a really cool digital way. Are you supportive of that 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 direction, or do you just you just don't think social media is important for you as a broker? For me personally, the extent of my social media right now is WhatsApp, texting, and email. And obviously, that's a joke. I'm not. Uh, I know that's not social media. I don't. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not doing any of that. But my 28-year-old son, he'll be 29 next month. He just got in the business. Been a golf pro for the last six years, trying to get on the PGA Tour. That didn't work the way he had hoped. So now he's realizing that selling real estate in Aspen doesn't look half bad. And I'm telling him every day that you need to, you need to look at Andrew Erneman and Chris Klug and others and that's the model. You've got to be active in social media. You've got to be doing all of these things that are new marketing avenues in the business. Those are critically important for you to become an expert at and make all of that part of your program. I'm 56. My business is rolling. I'm living on referrals and market knowledge 
And that's what I bring to my clients. And I'm not necessarily trying to build my brand. I'm trying to maintain my brand. I'm certainly not retiring. But somebody that's new in the business or younger in the business and uh, must take advantage of all of this technology. It's, I think it's critical. How do you then, as you know, somebody that's more seasoned in the industry, been doing it a long time, you've got an incredible network of, of people, incredibly successful. How do you continuously learn in your trade? Well, I get my teeth kicked in every now and then by making mistakes along the way. And it's amazing after 24 years, and it's a relatively simple business. Things come up all the time, and really we're, we're managers of problems in this business. So I'm, I'm constantly paying attention, and I'm doing as much as I can to teach young brokers. When I say young brokers, I'm also talking about brokers that have been in the business for 10 or 20 years. But I'm trying to teach as much as possible, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase that oftentimes when you're teaching, you're learning. And so I find that to be very true. I'm, I'm, I'm learning all the time, in, in part because I'm affiliated with 180 agents in my company. We're all having success and failures and, and scoring touchdowns and, and fumbling. And so just paying attention to all of that, uh, it's a constant learning, learning experience. So I like to end the show with a few favorites. So just to, you know, do you have a favorite recreational pursuit these days? Yeah, I'm a crazy avid golfer. I, I'm one of those guys. I could, I could play golf 364 days a year. Good for you. Do you, do you get out to play in the winter? Um, a little bit. Yeah. Ernie's got a, a house in uh, Palm Springs, so I can get out there and hang out with him and play a little golf with him there couple of trips every now and then i've got a 12 year old so i can't i can't just jump up and and run away and of course i've got my business yeah in this spring summer and fall the good thing about the maroon creek club is i can get out there at 7 a.m and play with one or two guys and we can play in two and a half hours and i can be at work by 10 o'clock in the morning and nobody knows i was missing so that's <laughs> that's that's my usual program the ski season's winding down, uh, off season's coming up, uh, before the craziness of the summer, which I'm expecting to be crazy. Um, what, you know, what do you like to do in the off season? Um, yeah, we laugh about that in the office. Sharon will say there is no off season. We're just as busy in May as we are in July or November as we are in, in March. So, um, but like I said, I've got a 12 year old, so off season is still school season. So, there's really not a whole lot, a whole lot to do other than, you know, hike and bike. I, I do all the normal Aspen activities that, that generally speaking, all of us do. I spend a good amount of time with, with my wife and my 12 year old daughter. So just normal stuff, hanging around town, doing things. So you said you're not a, you're not a huge social person in terms of dinners and all that kind of stuff, but if you do have to entertain a client in town, do you have any shout outs for particular spots you like to go? Yeah, I like uh, Craig's restaurants. I like uh, I like to go to Steakhouse Three Sixteen. I like Monarch, of course. You know, if we're in the mood for sushi, like uh, Kenichi and and Matsu, and you know, on the mid level scale, we like going to uh, White House and and meat and cheese. So and and we go everywhere. You know, we'll have dinner at the bar at Losteria, although we haven't done any of that for the last fourteen or fifteen months. 
love going to Jimmy's and sitting at the bar, especially if there's a ball game on. And yeah, so I, I guess if I had to, if I was taking some clients out and I was trying to make, make an impact, I'd probably pick uh, Steakhouse 316. What about nonprofits? Do you have one that you particularly get behind? Yeah, you know, Ernie handles our donations from the company. And I would say we give we give smaller amounts to a hundred different organizations as opposed to large amounts to a few. I think that's just the nature of living in a small town. And there's there's so many people that know us, know our company, know us personally, that are that are asking for us to contribute. So consequently we do we do a lot but it's spread out literally, uh, I think, over a uh, 100 or so organizations. Personally, my, my favorite locally is San Diego Hart uh, and the board, Jim Lang, and, and some others that I can't think of off the top of my head for the Aspen Hope Center, which is mental health and suicide awareness. Uh, I've had several friends commit suicide, and I think we all know people that have committed suicide. So that one touches me. And that's a, that's one of my favorites to give to. And on a bigger scale, uh, national scale, MD Anderson, cancer research. And that's from, I mentioned my friend, Robert from Dallas. He's on the board there and I've gone to some MD Anderson functions. And I got to tell you, there's a, there's a selfish element to that too, because having met Robert and been to some of these social functions, I've met many, many wealthy people through my MD Anderson connections, and they've bought homes in Aspen. So I've made giant commissions off of people, and I feel obligated to keep MD Anderson as high on my list of, of giving back. And obviously, it's cancer research, and so it's a, it's a great cause. So, um, And the other one that came across for me that has always hit me is um, the St. Jude Children's Hospital. We give to St. Jude's regularly. So that answer your question? Yeah. No, thanks. I, I struggle with it all the time. That's one that keeps me up at night because I feel so um, blessed with the life that I have and I, and I want to give back. And I'm also always concerned about being able to take care of my kids and take care of my family, which... Uh, I'm probably there, but I'm just by nature, I'm, I'm always concerned about that. So that's a mental struggle for me all the time. So wrapping up, we talked a little bit about, you know, you've had a very successful Q1 and, but you did mention that you think it is slowing down into the summer, just given the lack of inventory. Do you think we're on the precipice of a bubble here in Aspen? It's such a tough question to answer. Number one, because... I'm supposed to say no, it's supposed to, you know, it's but taking all that aside of just being a cheerleader for the, for the real estate market. I've been doing it for 24 years. So since 1997, there's been only a couple of, of dips in our market. And I suppose it's like the stock market or like the S and P 500 where just, just get in and stay in and and you should be fine. Historically speaking, that's what this market will tell you. That's what the stock market tells you. That's what the S&P 500 tells you. And so does it feel like we're 
we're on some wave that that I mean the trees don't grow all the way to the moon. They grow to the sky and they grow high, but they don't go to the moon. So at some point, something's got to happen here. And yes, it feels to me like we're we're very near that point where something's got to happen. And maybe it's not a collapse. Maybe it's just a flat line for a couple of years, which is what I would expect, not an all-out decline. I think that there's too many people that have realized they can work remotely and they want to live in areas, not just Aspen, there's plenty of areas that offer an amazing quality of life and a small town atmosphere and yet still exciting and and with things to do. So I'm not expecting anything dramatic, but yeah, it feels awfully frothy out there to me right now. Craig, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's been very illuminating and uh, educational for new brokers and up-and-comers and and those that are already successful as well. Where can people learn more about you? Good question. Uh, My personal website is craigmorris.com. It says a little bit about me there. The first tee box at the Maroon Creek Club during the summer is is a good place to meet me and spend three and a half or four hours together to get to know each other. But otherwise, I I don't know. Um, It's really hard to get to know anybody unless you spend spend a bit of time with them. Uh, But my website is a good place to start and tells you a good chunk about me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Selling the Mountains. You'll never miss an episode if you subscribe or follow the show. If you liked what you heard, please leave a short review and share it with a friend. For more information about Selling the Mountains, including feedback, suggestions, or sponsorship opportunities, please visit sellingthemountains.com and sign up for our newsletter. You can follow the show on Instagram or Facebook at Selling the Mountains. You can follow the host on Twitter at Christian Knapp or on Instagram at Napstagram. This show was produced in collaboration with Dustin H. James at Podboarder. Selling the Mountains is a production of Moment of Truth, LLC. All rights reserved.